Okay, you guys, here we go. She Runs Ultras, episode number 172. So we've talked about a lot of different aspects of running and ultra running so far in 172 episodes. Some of these things you will talk about in mixed company, at your running groups, during trail races, during, you know, training runs or whatever. Some things you might only want to talk about with your close running friends. Maybe some things you only want to talk about with your partner or health professionals only. Maybe because you're nervous, scared, embarrassed. You don't know if what you're going through is normal or whether it's like, you know, an issue unique to you. But what we're going to talk about today is pelvic floor health. Now, real quick, before you go, "Mm, probably not for me, I'm going to caution you. If you skip this episode, you're going to be missing out on a lot of super valuable information about how your pelvic floor affects your entire body and your running. Okay. So If you're at all squeamish about this, just know that your pelvic floor is connected to everything. If you experience stress incontinence, if you pee while you run, or even if you just have a cranky knee, hip, back, foot, ankle, you might actually have some pelvic floor stuff going on, but you don't even know it. All right. So Becca's going to talk about this in a real interesting way, especially if you enjoy sort of geeking out over the anatomy and physiology of it all, because it's all connected. You guys, you've heard me say this before. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Becca Lyons. tell us like a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got into this, you know, you, and I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on is because you are a runner yourself. Um, so this makes perfect sense for you to come on and talk about these things, but I don't want to hijack the conversation. So tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got into it. You're running all the fun stuff. Cool. So my name is Becca Lyons. I'm a doctor of physical therapy and I own my own a private practice clinic with my husband. So we do outpatient orthopedics and we treat the whole lifespan. Um, so starting down at no babies, but pretty much walking, talking up um, to 99 plus. Um, I have some specialties in vestibular rehab. So vertigo, concussion, that side of things, as well as in um, pelvic health. And I treat men, women, and trans patients. Um, So I really span the whole breath there as far as pelvic health goes. Um, I've been practicing for, oh geez. Uh, (laughs) No, right? How long have I been at this? (laughs) Uh, Coming up on nine years. So that's exciting. Um, And I've worked from the East Coast to the West Coast and back and had a lot of cool experiences and great mentors along the way. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of the PT side of things. And then from a personal side, I've been running since, seriously running since I was in the fifth grade. Um, If you can be serious. I was just going to say, nobody's going to see it, but like you just did air quotes. (laughs) You don't have to put any air, like you're a runner. (laughs) You don't have to put any air quotes on it. (laughs) Um, I say seriously because I was pretty like, I am type A and even as a kid, I was type A. So I took it quite seriously from day one, I think. You're in good company. (laughs) Yes. While my mom drove beside me in her minivan to make sure no one kidnapped me in our tiny little town. But just to be safe. (laughs) 
yes. So been running since then. In seventh grade, our middle school didn't have a running team anymore. So I was lucky enough to join the high school team. And I was able to run with them early and just compete in little events, nothing um, from like a championship side of things. Um, and then transitioned into more serious running when I got to high school, um, which is actually how I ended up being a PT. Uh, I grew six inches in six months at 16 years old and was in and out of PT while trying to maintain my competitive edges. A high school athlete. That's so, crazy fast. Yeah, it was not good. Not good. So it certainly stunted my progress. Um, yeah, but was super lucky to, I still to this day coach and I get to coach alongside my high school coach, Mike Smith. Um, so things have really come full circle on that standpoint. That's awesome. So cross country yeah. predominantly and track and field, or was there another distance in there that you enjoyed um, as well? All three seasons, so cross country, indoor, and outdoor track. Cool. Definitely a distance kid. There's nothing sprinter in my body. Uh, I don't think it mattered how fast I tried to go. I always ran the same yep. 400 meter time, <laughs> no matter what. Uh, the longer, the better, as far as I was concerned. So cross country was definitely my bread and butter. And are um, you? I know you're coaching these days, and and I saw a couple of posts from you guys doing. Um, oh gosh. What was the race that you guys just ran? But like a lot of like local 5Ks, are you doing any longer distance stuff too? Yep. So I've kind of put myself a little bit on the back burner, which I know you're not supposed to do, but you can only juggle so many things. I mean, opening a PT practice is like kind of an involved process. (laughs) So yes, that has taken over for sure. Between that and coaching, Mm. I've been pretty busy. Um, So I'm not training for anything specific at this point, Um, but I do get out for my runs several days a week, and I'm always on the trails at this point. I used to do a mix of road and trails, but I don't know. The trails are much more peaceful. They're much more relaxing. My stress levels come down faster. I think everybody will will resonate with that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I only run roads as much as I can, like use the road to get to the next section of trail. <laughs> yep. It's half a mile to get to the trail system. And then from there, I don't touch him again. Nice. Nice. So, nice. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah. Th- you mentioned like that growth spurt, you spent a lot of time in PT. Is that sort of like how you got the first inclination that this might be something that you wanted to do? Yes, exactly. So I grew up on a farm and up until that point, I was dead set on being a large animal farm vet. Um, going to Cornell, I knew exactly what I was doing. (laughs) And then I ended up working with Hunter Burgess, who's a local physical therapist and, um, thought, Hey, this is pretty cool. And probably not as stressful as being a farm vet. (laughs) Yep. A little more flexible as I get older. Um, and so, yeah, that's what kind of brought me there. It's like in and out pretty much all through high school, just Never totally got over that initial growth spurt in my high school years. Um, And then when I got to college, I missed – I hadn't run all summer because I was still injured. Missed the Quinnipiac University cross-country tryouts Mm. by 12 seconds. Looked at the coach and was like, you know, I haven't been training. Like, it's only 12 seconds. Like, there's nothing. (laughs) He said, oh, come back in the spring. And that was kind of the – 
wake up call that yeah, maybe it's time to actually take care of these things in full and get stuff sorted. Yeah. Um, which I did and then found myself doing half marathons and <laughs> then marathons and <laughs> haven't run many 5Ks <laughs> since that yeah. time. So, so what sort of stuff did you, like what were the ramifications? Just like hip stuff, knee stuff, like what, what all was affected? Yeah. It started with knee pain, mm-hmm. um, dealt with that, got that feeling better. Then the hips started to hurt, mm-hmm. got the hips feeling better, back to the knees. It just was kind of that ping pongy back and forth. You know, spend a month doing pool running, trying to stay in shape while doing strengthening. And yeah. um, sometimes stuff just needs time, especially as a kid. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that, but that's hard for a kid to hear. Um, especially it's hard for when adults you... to hear. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Touche. Touche. <laughs> Most of the adults that I work with are like, how quickly can we get this done? And I'm like, okay, well, uh, like what is, what's the outcome that you want? You know, like we could, we could put a bunch of duct tape on this and get it to work for just this one time. And then you'll be investing all the time on the back end. Or if you've got more time, we could work on some of this stuff up front so that it's sort of like one and done. Like you can address it and then perhaps it never comes up again as an issue. So it's really just what path do you want to take? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yep. We deal with that a lot. Just we do work with a lot of the local athletes. And so trying not to be like, well, this one time back when I was your age, but this one time back when I was your age, like learn from my mistakes. Don't you don't have to repeat them, but and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I think back to when I was in high school, we basically had a trainer, um, an athletic trainer, and we had no weight room. We had no coaching outside the sport that we were doing, um, for, which for me was not running. It was either soccer, softball, or gymnastics, which was fine. But, and even in college, we didn't really have access to that level of stuff. So now I look at a lot of the local programs here and the collegiate programs and see these athletes having access to all these professionals that I didn't have. And I was, I'm super jealous. Right. And so, but me back then probably would have been like, nah, it's like not a big deal. I'm fine. I don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I remember in college going to the gym and we had a amazing facility and literally I tell this story all the time, taking workouts from like Cosmo and muscle and fitness, like, you know, because that was basically what existed back then and trying to piece together some sort of a softball appropriate workout. And I think back to, you know, I spent a lot of time in the, in the training room getting stim and ice on my shoulder. That was really the start of when, when I started to get my sciatic pain, um, which they didn't even know what to do with. They were just like, uh, I don't know. Cause I couldn't, you know, it would come and go. It wasn't consistent. And so I just am so jealous of all of these kids that, you know, have access to these things when I would have killed for some of that help back then. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's different times. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. It's changed mm-hmm. a lot. So what made you decide to mm-hmm. sort of focus on, um, vestibular stuff and pelvic floor? 
Yep. So I treat everything. Yeah. My first my first job right out of school was actually all um, spinal cord injury, brain injury, and stroke. So it was really physical. Um, Did you work at CrossFit? I worked at Northeast Rehab. Oh, okay. Um, and so I was pretty lucky. I actually interned in Salem with them as my last internship of my doctorate degree. And then they offered me a job and I was like, I can't drive an hour and a half one way to work. It was one thing to do it for three months, but I can't do that for the rest of my life. Um, And they happened to be opening the um, unit up at the Elliott Hospital. Um, And so, and they offered me a job there, which was pretty cool. And the best part of that was probably just the confidence I got because there's only me, a brand new grad, and then one other full-time PT. And so there was no picking and choosing who got the easier cases or who didn't. It was just sink or swim and pray to God I didn't mess anybody up worse than they were. Um, So that was a pretty cool place to get started and gave me a lot of confidence, but also I mean, the people have those main diagnoses, but there's so much else that goes into them, which started to really pique my interest. Um, And then my husband and I decided to move to Oregon on a whim. Um, Getting there for the first time with all of our belongings in tow. So we just kind of looked at the map. We went and I got a job there that was actually, it was brand new. I'd never heard of it. And they basically stationed me in an extension of the emergency room. So I did a lot of diagnostics um, and saw everything you could possibly imagine, whether it was like a broken arm or something sprained or back pain, anything like musculoskeletal. Um, But I also started getting like seven to 10 patients a week with vertigo. And I was like, wow, I don't really know a lot about this, but I'm certainly seeing a lot of these people. I better figure this out quickly. Um, And so I did. I started taking all these courses online um, because that's what was like very readily available to me. Um, And there's a pretty good program out there for PTs that connects you to some of the top um, instructors around the country. So I was able to connect with Jeffrey Walters, who's kind of like the leading guru um, and vestibular work. So I just took every class he offered that I could get my hands on. And for two and a half years, I just saw all sorts of vertigo, vestibular concussion patients. Mm. So that kind of forced my hand in that direction really more than anything, but was really enjoyable. It's interesting Uh, because the topic of, um, vertigo has come up a lot, like on a personal level, like my mom suffers from vertigo issues, bouts that just sort of come and go that, that nothing seems to address. She's tried everything in the book. Um, and then I have a couple clients who like one who has Meniere's disease and, um, just sort of random, there are other people that have just sort of random complaints about vertigo coming and going. Is there something like in particular that you found, like a thread that might connect all those things or they're really coming from, you know, different places or is there something that these people can sort of look at as a way to improve this or reduce their symptoms? 
Yeah, there's a lot of different causes mm. for vertigo. So you can have, you know, a big piece of my work when I was in Oregon was kind of ruling out what I like to call the big scaries. <laughs> um, so, you know, making sure that there wasn't a stroke causing it or multiple scler- sclerosis or, um, I don't know. There's all sorts of yeah. like neuro components that can contribute. Um, cancer, mm. that was like a big one was people who had had um, a history of cancer mm. and then would show up with vertigo. And that was a pretty crappy thing to be the person to be like, I'll go get your doctor. Mm. I'll talk to you. You know, like they, people know. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of the big scaries that we try to rule out. And then the rest of it is more manageable, not necessarily pleasant, but more manageable anyways. Yeah. Um, and so you can get um, sinus infections that cause vertigo. Mm. Um, your sinuses sit very close to the vestibular nerves, um, so you can get irritation at the nerve level. Um, there's, you know, the crystals of the inner ear that can dislodge and cause a positional vertigo. Mm. Um Airplane flights tend to be a big trigger for people. Again, kind of those pressures through the sinuses, um, allergies. Um, So there's a lot of different causes. Sometimes it's just motion sensitivity. Hmm. um, And there's some training that can be done to decrease that component. Dehydration, blood pressure. I mean... You name it. (laughs) Yeah, there's (laughs) a lot of different things. So it's a pretty uh, holistic and thorough approach that we take with these clients to make sure that we're not missing something that's, you know, life altering or if it's something that we can fix on the spot. It's always nice to fix things on the spot. We don't get much of that in physical therapy. A lot of it's like, okay, we're going to work at this and it's going to take time. But positional vertigo specifically is one of those that I can be like, you're going to go home and feel great today. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so having that nice little stuff. win is probably really, really rewarding. Absolutely. Yep. So that's how I got into the vestibular side of things. And then pelvic health, I got into more from a personal side. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really think a whole lot about it. I kind of probably like a lot of people was like, oh, yeah, I've heard every woman in the world talk about how they leak when they jump on a trampoline or (laughs) when they jump rope. And so I don't And in my brain, I think I go back to probably about 16 years old when I was actually experiencing my first pelvic floor symptoms and didn't know any better. Mm. Um, Not addressing any of it till my late twenties. And so that, yeah, leaking with running, um, I grew up riding horses. Mm. I think that was a contributing factor because it's a great way to make your pelvic floor muscles really tight Mm. (laughs) if you don't know any better. Yeah. Um, So there's that piece. Um, Running can be a contributing factor if you're not doing the other components to balance out your running because it is, um, especially in the endurance side of things, right? It's super repetitive and it requires a lot of continual contractions. So you can get that tension building in the pelvic floor if it's mm. not managed, um, which I knew nothing about at that point in time. So I think between horseback riding and being a runner from such a young age that um, kind of set me mm-hmm. on my personal path, um, ended up working with 
an individual who became a great mentor um, to me and still is to this day who was like, that's not normal. (laughs) And I'm like, sure it is. And she's like, so I have this saying now that I say it might be common, but it's not normal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just because everyone talks about it and laughs about it, it doesn't, it's not normal. Yeah. I think that's the, that's so key because I mean, I remember growing up hearing, you know, my mom, my aunts talk about like, just like drop little things, you know, along the way. They didn't necessarily like discuss it as a topic, but it was like, and it was largely centered around, you know, I'm, I'm one of four kids. My aunts have all at least had two or more kids. So it was a common theme around like, you know, talking about pelvic floor stuff and having kids. But I think that's where some people sort of tune out because it's it's not just a quote unquote issue that affects women who have had children, right? Like we all uh, have a pelvic floor, you know? Um, yep. But I think first for, for people who maybe just are completely new to this, I know obviously this is a podcast and we don't have any visual aids, but can you sort of just describe what like the area, maybe some of the muscles that people might associate with the pelvic floor so we can sort of like locate it in the body for people that are listening. Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny you said we can't have props because I got home and I was like, I should have brought my pelvic model. And I was like, you're dumb. (laughs) I mean, that would have been great. I can just clip. No one can hear your pelvic model. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I could clip the video and put that in there as well. But even without the pelvic model, Um, A plus for being like super overprepared and thinking about bringing your models. That's so great. (laughs) So the pelvis sits right in the center of the body. So thinking about your legs and your spine attaching onto it, it's really compromised of two halves being like the pelvic bones. And then those are connected in the front with cartilage. And then in the back, they actually join with your sacrum. So if you think about the base going to the base of your spine, and then you have a nice triangle-shaped bone that attaches your tailbone off of that as well. So that's your sacrum and then the two halves of the pelvis. And those three bones, the two halves and the sacrum, Um, It's a little controversial, but they all have independent movement of each other, including the sacrum and the SI joint, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Why do you say it's controversial? Um, There are practitioners out there, and I'd say the probably older practitioners at this point that say there's no movement in what we refer to as the SI joint, Hmm. Um, so where the sacrum joins um, the ilium and or joins on to the pelvis Mm -hmm. um i disagree i feel like modern research disagrees but you'll still find people who believe what they believe Mm -hmm. um so we've got these bones and again they're kind of suspended there in the center of your body and i like to think about the pelvis as a bowl and if you were to look down from on top of your body into this pelvic bowl, you would find a whole large group of fairly small muscles. Um, They operate very differently than the other muscles in your body. So the pelvic floor is a pretty unique group of muscles. Um, They operate, like if you think about your bicep, there's a starting point and an ending point. That's the attachment and it contracts 
and it relaxes to do its job. Um, the pelvic floor um, tends to operate with slings. Um, so you'll get a muscle that attaches from the back or from the front rather slings back to the posterior aspect of the pelvis and then wraps back around to mm. the front. So very different mechanisms of how those muscles um, do work. We like to use the visual of that pelvic bowl and the muscles as kind of being like a trampoline. Mm. Um, and that pelvic muscle being your black mesh that you would jump on. Mm -hmm. And that's the other piece of the pelvic floor muscles is, is, it's, is it is one of the most reactive muscle groups in the body. Mm -hmm. So again, we'll use that bicep. Your bicep fires if you're picking something up and it lets go to put something down. Your pelvic floor is constantly reacting to what the rest of your body is doing. Mm -hmm. um, so when you go to pick that thing up, your pelvic floor is responding to give you some stability mm -hmm. or when your foot hits the ground, it's reacting to that. So it's constantly reacting to everything around you. Um, so it is a little bit different that way from the other muscle groups as well. And we're largely talking about this in the context of women's running, but just to clarify, men also have a pelvic floor. Yes, men also have a pelvic floor. Um, actually, one of my favorite reads, um, and it's really the book is about is called Come As You Are. Um, and it's written by Emily. Her last name starts with the letter N. I can't remember what it is. We'll right look now, it up. We'll include Come it in As the You show Are. Yep. Um, and it's her book as the title kind of alludes to, is more about orgasm and intercourse and that side of things. But the front part of the book, I really recommend people read because it does go over female and male anatomy mm. um, and how we pretty much all have the same parts, just rearranged in a different anatomical feature yeah. more than anything. Yeah. Um, so yes, everything that we do for female pelvic floor more or less carries over into male. We just usually use different access points. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. So um, I, I fielded some questions from my member group um, and they sort of range the, the gamut um, from, you know, what is the pelvic floor all the way to, you know, exercises and all that stuff. So I thought maybe we could just go through some of these because they're, they're common questions or common, you know, topics or even, you know, issues or challenges that people are facing and specifically runners too. Um, so I thought maybe we could, we could dive into a couple of those if you're, if you're game for that. Yeah, bet. Um, let me look here real quick. Cause we talked about one of these already. So I guess, where should we start here? Maybe we don't just like, I was trying to go in like a logical order, but maybe it will probably end up bouncing <laughs> around anyway. So I think um, so, sort of circling back to our discussion around like, you know, anytime we heard the pelvic floor discussed, it was mostly around like childbirth. So I, one of the questions was, does having uh, have had a C-section affect your pelvic floor? Yes, it does. And it's not necessarily, I mean, yes, the act of having a C-section will impact your pelvic floor, but also regardless of whether you vaginally birthed a child, your pelvic floor is still held in 
a seven, <laughs> nine pound, six to nine pound baby yep. for nine months. So um, regardless of how you've had that child, mm-hmm. um, absolutely, there's that impact on the pelvic floor. And then the C-section itself, um, I mean, you're cutting through seven, I think it's seven layers of tissue. So if you think about the skin and fat and connective tissue and layers of muscles, you're, you know, you've got the six pack rectus abdominis, you've got the obliques under that, you've got transverse abdominis. I mean, it just keeps going. Then you're still having to cut through more connective tissue Mm -hmm. through the uterus. So it's pretty extensive surgery. Um, It's probably one of the most invasive, extensive surgeries one can have. And yet, because it happens so often, it's like, it's like, oh, don't pick up anything over five pounds and I'll see you in six weeks. Yeah. Oh, wait, but your baby's already seven pounds. Like, right. <laughs> it really doesn't make sense when you think of like, put it all together. But um, no, a C-section is a very extensive surgery. It requires, the pelvic floor is going to get impacted through your caring mm-hmm. of the child. But then your pelvic floor never operates alone. Mm-hmm. Your pelvic floor, you know, Jane Little, my one of my like most longtime friends and mentors, you know, she said the pelvic floor is the core of the core, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work by itself, works with the rest of the core. Mm-hmm. And a C-section is just cutting right through that whole abdominal region. So there's a lot of retraining, um, re-coordinating you know, the whole nine yards that goes with that C-section. We also worry a lot about um, scar tissue. Mm. Um, And it's starting to be, I think social media has actually really helped the pelvic health community um, quite a bit. I mean, you always have to sort where you're getting your information from. Um, But there has been a lot more shared on managing your incisions and scar tissue. because scar tissue doesn't pick and choose what it attaches to. And um, with the C-section being through those all those layers, I mean, scar tissue can attach to your bladder, your uterus, your pelvis. I mean, it can connect to everything. It's not just sealing mm. the incision itself. So there's a lot of management that has to happen on that side of things too. So is there a way for someone who's either not yet pregnant or maybe is pregnant um, along the spectrum? So maybe they're early first trimester or maybe they're getting into their second or third. Is there a way for them to do any sort of proactive exercises or strengthening to help them, you know, either way, whether they are um, having a vaginal birth or having a C-section? Absolutely. I work with a lot of um, women through their pregnancy. Um, and sometimes I'll get people kind of towards that l- latter half where they're like, oh, my back's hurting mm-hmm. or my hip's hurting. And sometimes I get, I think it's, I don't know, an honor to work with people right from the beginning because I feel like, oh, now we've got it. Like yeah. we're getting this right from day one. Like this is fantastic. Um, so yes, I work with that group quite a bit. Um, starting early on, we can do a lot of preventative work. So mm-hmm. we can make sure that um, breathing patterns are right, 
and hip strength is right and the core is functioning the way it needs to and muscles are stretched and um, joints are going to become more mobile and flexible throughout pregnancy because of hormone release. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you can get the strength to kind of stabilize your skeletal structure along the way, it can make for a slightly more comfortable um, pregnancy. A lot of postural work mm-hmm. as you start adding more and more load on the front of the body, it takes a big toll on the back. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of work that can be done that way. We do a lot of labor prep. Um, so working with breathing patterns, remembering that it's the uterus that evacuates the baby, not how strong you are. <laughs> so as much as we work on strength, we also work on the importance of being able to relax the pelvic floor, right? Allow um, those muscles to spread, allow the vaginal opening to expand. Um, we'll do a lot of work towards those final weeks on a perineal massage. So the tissue around the vagina and connecting like vagina to anus, because Mm -hmm. that needs to be able to stretch. Mm -hmm. And that's not tissue that you don't quite stretch it like your hamstring. (laughs) And it's not something that people just like, oh, I'm just doing my perineal stretches today. Like people are like, you want me to do what? Yeah. (laughs) How am I supposed to do that? Are you sure? Um, So there's a lot that way, Um, but also thinking outside the pelvic floor. There's so many muscles that attach to the pelvis. So you think about your hamstrings attached to your pelvis, your hip flexors, your adductors on the inner thighs. I mean, your back muscles, like Mm -hmm. so many things. I mean, it's called the core for the reason. Everything really does attach onto it. And so if your hamstrings are tight, that's going to tension your pelvic floor muscles. Mm-hmm. It's going to impact your pregnancy. It's going to impact your delivery. Um, so there's a lot there. We also work a lot on um, abdominal pressure management. So again, that breath side of things, uh, body mechanics, like how do you lift when you've got a big belly in front yeah. of you or Um, How do I lift after delivery when I have had a Mm C-section? Because they told me it's a five-pound lifting restriction and I have a nine-pound baby. So how do I safely do these things because I'm not not picking up my child? Yeah. Um, So we work a lot of that really, you know, through the whole pregnancy. And then I love to see people starting six weeks postpartum to get them back on the track because – Unfortunately, the way our medical system works, you have your baby, your baby seen weekly, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eventually monthly, you have a baby and you're not seen for six weeks, and then they say, "Oh yeah, you're good." Yeah. Like, what do you what do you mean I'm good? Good for what? Like, yeah. <laughs> now what? <laughs> I, I, I'm still super gassy and can't stop it. I'm still leaking urine. I still yeah. have pain when I bend over to pick up my kiddo. Like. Yeah. But but you're good. Yeah. So just <laughs> you're cleared. You're, you're medically cleared, except <laughs> yeah. you have all of these other yeah. things that you didn't exactly. have before, yeah. and you're not a medical professional, and you're not going to be able to self-diagnose and or self-treat. Yeah. So yeah, it's well, and a lot of times, right? If you don't know any better, your doctor, your OB says you're good. Mm-hmm. Six weeks, you're good. Psh, sweet, five k next week. Yep. 
like back at it. Yeah. Well, you you might not be ready to be back at it. Yeah. And um, so having somebody that focuses their attention and time there in your court to successfully guide you, mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier, get like nip it in the bud, get everything right now, put the right groundwork in mm-hmm. versus creating issues that you're then having to circle back to as you continue down the line. Yeah. So one of the things I think, um, a question that came up and I'm not sure I might be projecting onto this, but I have seen some of this kind of floating around in the ether on social media. So the question is, (laughs) and it's in parentheses, like do core exercises help strengthen (laughs) the pelvic floor? And I think this, in my opinion, is clickbait, like people trying to, you know, entice women specifically, obviously to click on their content, like, oh, strengthen your core and your pelvic floor. Like, (laughs) you know, so (laughs) I think, uh, I think the, what I think I'm hearing you say is that there are separate exercises, but also there are some exercises some core exercises that could benefit pelvic floor, but we should be sort of thinking about them separately. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Separate, but together, Mm -hmm. I guess, is how I would say it. So like most of the time when we think core exercises, right, if someone's like, oh, I'm going to the gym to strengthen my core, (laughs) they're thinking sit-ups, crunches, planks, Mm -hmm. bicycles, dead bugs, right, which are all fantastic exercises, if you're doing them right. Mm-hmm. That's the kicker. <laughs> um, which is always the key. Um, so yes, yes, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had said earlier, no, pelvic floor is the core of the core. So, and it, and it never operates, you know, I say this, I don't know, several times a day. Your pelvic floor doesn't operate alone. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that reactive group. So no one cares how strong of a Kegel you can do lying on your back while you're in bed. Nobody cares <laughs> like how long you can hold that Kegel while you're lying on your back in bed. <laughs> like Your core doesn't need to do much when you're lying in bed. Yeah. But how does it work with other muscles? Like how does it work with everything else? And that's really, you know, it used to be that if you did go in at six weeks, postpartum and say, hey, I'm having urinary incontinence, they'd be like, Kegels, every stoplight, every stop sign, every time you pick up the phone, do five Kegels, right? Well, guess what? It probably worked for some people, Yeah. but it probably made some people worse Mm -hmm. Um, because you have to figure out why, like, what is the why? Why am I leaking? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I having pain with intercourse? Mm-hmm. Why is it that I can run in a straight line, but if I do a jumping jack, I all of a sudden have wet my pants? Like, they're both impact, but like, why? What's the difference yeah. here? And so, are there some main um, common themes in terms of that? Like, or is it just totally unique to every single person? No, I'd say there's definitely some common themes and probably the biggest, like the two biggest things are, you know, people say, oh, I have a weak pelvic floor. Well, do you have, is it, is it weak or is it tight? Is it tight and weak or is it overstretched and Mm. weak? Um, Is it strong, but it's not coordinated? Mm. Um, So a lot, 
I would say, I don't know, most of the population has what I would consider like reverse patterns. Um, so I don't know. I can probably picture being six years old and somebody saying, you know, stand up tall, shoulders back, suck it in. Yep. Like, I know I'm not the only person that heard that, right? And if you think about like, okay, if I'm sucking in my abdomen, mm-hmm. what does that do to my breathing? Well, now all of a sudden I'm a chest breather mm-hmm. and my diaphragm's barely moving up and down. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Your diaphragm and your pelvic floor work in tangent together. So if your diaphragm's barely going up and down, yeah. your pelvic floor is probably not doing much either. Yeah. This is something I think like a lot of people Um, don't understand just the basic mechanics of breathing and the way that, you know, the diaphragm works and how there's, you know, there's compression. It's a, you know, these two things. It's a canister. Right. Thank you. That's what I meant. It's a canister, right? Um, And I... uh, I do a lot of like when I teach my yoga classes, I, I try to get them to practice more, you know, big breathing in the sense that they can control it. Not just this, uh, like I sort of call it high, hard and fast. Like we're breathing all the way up here underneath your collarbones and you don't make use of anything. Like you have all these, you have three lobes in your lung. Like don't just use the upper, right? Like Mm -hmm. use, use the whole thing. Um, and I'll get people that will come up to me afterwards and they're like, I did not know that that was so hard to take like a deep breath because I asked them to do it in a specific order, you know, fill the bottom first, then the Mm -hmm. middle, then the top, and then reverse it, exit, top, middle, bottom. And so many people just don't have control over their lungs like that. And it's interesting. I'm going to sort of circle back around to what we were originally talking about, but the, one of the things that I have found really helpful for me was to sort of think about my body as different component parts, right? Like sort of like break out the body, you know, arms and legs, and then even down onto a smaller like joint by joint level and work on individual joints just themselves with the express purpose of making that one joint better in terms of its quality, range of motion, flexibility, um, active versus passive range of motion, like all of those things. And then when we put them all back together, even though we never physically take them apart, right? When we put (laughs) them all back together, the whole thing, the whole body just works better. And that I think is the key to a lot of this stuff. And even though you might come to you, somebody might come to you because, you know, they're having an issue with their shoulder or with their hip or with their pelvic floor because they're, you know, leaking while they run, your work might focus on one particular area, but you might also address a couple other things, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that are going to contribute to improving that area that they originally came to you for. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that's, um, it's kind of funny because the pelvic floor really is like a taboo subject. Yes. People don't really talk about it. Um, I went to Quinnipiac University for my undergrad and my doctorate, and it's is and was like one of the top, you know, three schools in the country for PT. Um, and I learned the pelvic muscles, but I did not learn. Oh, like I didn't truly learn yeah. what I know now know. Mm. 
Um, and for me, having my own personal stuff that took me to pelvic health, and then I was like, oh my gosh, like this is something that I can't believe I've ignored it, not on purpose, but I can't believe I've ignored it because now, you know, having this knowledge, having this base, someone comes to me for knee pain, right? Like I can't tell you the number of like runners or whatever with knee pain. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at your hip or let's look at your ankle. Okay. All right. Well, you know, There's your, this hip's other connected thing. To your, your hip's connected to your pelvis. And this is going to sound a little strange, but I'm going to ask you some questions about that, right? And then I start asking them questions about their pelvic health and that side of things. And I'm like, mm, let's address these things first. But when we're done with that, I don't think we fully fixed your problem. Yeah. Like along the way, if you're open to it, let's dive into the pelvic floor and see what's going on there. Mm. And that doesn't, I mean, and the pelvic floor, you can address it internally and externally. It doesn't mean that you have to have, right? A lot of times pelvic health sounds scary um, to a lot of people because they're like, I don't want a pelvic exam. And yes. Especially especially <laughs> men. Men are like, no way am I going to have an internal pelvic exam. First off, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's much better than the doctor's office. Yeah. But um, beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of ways to assess the pelvic floor. Um, and so just gaining a little information about, again, everything that's connected. If your breathing isn't right, I just learned something about your pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. If I watched you lift something and you held your breath like everybody does with the nice little like grunt and the big exhale yep. when they get to the top, I just learned something about your pelvic floor. Yeah. So there's so many ways to address it. And it it truly is all connected. Mm. I mean, like you said, kind of piece it apart and then put it back together. And you're for me, I just think like you're doing your patients misjustice if you're not at least willing to breach the subject mm -hmm. matters on all the components. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like, you know, the longer I do it, I feel like the I'm more comfortable, right? Because it's there is a learning curve to getting comfortable being a pelvic health therapist. Yeah. Um, especially for me, I mean, there are a lot of jokes about how prude <laughs> – I mean, I was your typical type A nerd, like yeah. <laughs> pelvic health, whoa, <laughs> we don't talk about that. Yeah. Um, so even just my comfort level, even when I went to my first course, you know, I was like, I still didn't know, like, I'm going to do this course, but I don't know if I'm ever going to implement it um, until I really got going with it. And then I was like, wow, this is a need. I need to be the person to do this. And the more comfortable I became with it. Yeah. Now, you, like, patients don't bat an eye when you explain it to them. But, um, yeah, there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. So It's all layers. I agree. <laughs> I think, like, one of the things that maybe you could help people with is if someone is considering going to a PT or, you know, someone who specializes in pelvic floor – what can they expect? Because I think like 
that just knowing what they're going, like maybe some of the questions they're going to be asked or how the appointment typically in, you know, air quotes typically might go will help to like assuage some of their fears that they're walking into this, you know, appointment and they're going to be instantly uncomfortable, you know? Yep. Yep. So for me, and this is just how I do things, um, my pelvic health. So my standard PT evaluations are 45 minutes long. Pelvic health is an hour and a half Mm. um, because it's complex and everything's based off of it. So it takes more time. Um, In the history, there's a lot more there. Um, So typically for me, it's an hour and a half appointment and we get through what we get through. I don't, you know, I always have like my routine that I like to go through, but there have been times where that hour and a half is spent entirely on history, mm. which is kind of mind blowing when you think about it, that there can possibly be that much to talk about. But there have been, you know, yeah. that has certainly been the case. Um, so we look at everything from, you know, first off, like, why is the person there? When did it start? Kind of the generics. Um, I ask about their... Um, like urinary patterns, their bowel patterns, um, food intake, hydration, their sleep, um, activity levels, intercourse, childbirth, a whole nine yards. Um, So we really kind of dive into everything on that standpoint. Um, The food and nutrition component is a huge factor um, when it comes and hydration, when it comes to a lot of your incontinence stuff mm. as well. Um, but also if someone's not eating well, they're probably not going to rehab very well. Mm. So keep on that sleep, super important. Again, if you're not sleep is when our bodies recharge, when they heal. Um, so diving into that piece, stress, <laughs> I don't know anyone that doesn't have stress, but not just what are your stressors, but how do you manage your stress? Mm. What does that look like? So really kind of taking that holistic approach from that standpoint. Um, Then I move into more of an orthopedic exam. So I tend to look at posture. Um, We'll look at, you know, the spinal curves themselves, but also postural strength. So head to toe, Um, we'll look at how, you know, how does the foot meet the floor? How, how are your arches? How are your ankles? Um, we really move up the whole chain, hip strength, knee strength, you know, really covering a brief screen of just about everything. How's the range of motion, flexibility, how do the hamstrings look, how do your adductors, hip flexors, all those things that really intertwine. Um, and then from there, I'll do usually get into some of the breathing stuff. Um, So we'll look at breathing patterns and that side of things. And then I'll do um, actually have patients sit right on my hands. And that's a great way to kind of externally assess the pelvic floor um, because I can feel that pelvic floor sink or lift away from my hands. Mm. Um, So we can do a nice, like fairly decent brief external assessment of that pelvic floor that way. So what's happening when... You breathe in, when you breathe out, when you take a big breath in, a big breath out. Um, is that something that like people could do on their own? 
you can do it on your own. Yes. And a lot of times I'll have patients do just that. I'll have them sit on their hand when they're struggling to learn those patterns. Mm. Like this is a great way to get self-feedback. So hip palm facing up or palm palm down? How- palm, p- palm facing up. Yep. And then just sit right on your hand. And when you inhale, your diaphragm should push down towards your pelvis mm-hmm. in order to allow your lungs to expand, which means your pelvic floor should also be dropping down. So you'd feel more pressure in your hand. More pressure. Exactly. And then as you exhale, diaphragm is going to lift up, pushing the air out. Pelvic floor is going to draw up and you should have less pressure. Um, so we can do like a, like I said, a kind of a quick assessment that way we can have people bear down, like they're going to have a bowel movement, um, lift up and do kind of what their version of a Kegel might be. Mm -hmm. I don't give instructions at this point in time. I just like to see what people think they're doing. Uh Um, and then from there we can decide if an internal exam is appropriate. Um, a lot of times, depending, it really depends on the patient. Sometimes at that point we'll be like, you know what? You have a whole lot to work on (laughs) just from what we've got right now. Like let's set up some homework and go from there. And then from the like pelvic internal exam, um, we always get consent and we get frequent consent along the way. People are able to have, if they want like their partner or family member or something in the room, they can certainly opt for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the internal exam, I will start lying down, um, having the patient lie down. Um, and so we do like an external visual assessment of the pelvic region and then the internal exam where just like you can get tension in your shoulders from stress or knots in your shoulders, you can also get tension and knots in your pelvic floor. Um, so we can assess um, that that trampoline, right? So <laughs> we can be like, wow, this is a brand new super tight <laughs> trampoline. Or, uh, oh, this trampoline sat out in the winter for the last yeah. 10 years. <laughs> and it's got a lot of stretch going on. Yeah. Um, so we can check for tissue tensions, um, tender points. Mm. We can check strength. We can check coordination, um, endurance. And are you doing this manually or do you have a device that measures this for you? It's a digital exam. Yep. So it's a gloved hand, gloved finger, um, much more comfortable than the, uh, speculum used yeah. for your pap smears and your yeah. typical gynecology exams. Um, so yep, it's a digital exam and we'll also check for prolapse mm. at that point. Um, a lying down exam is great, but again, no one really cares how strong your core is when you're on your back. So depending on the circumstances, I'll also do a standing um, internal pelvic exam. Um, That's something I've more recently implemented Mm. into my practice. Interesting. Um, Always learning. Yeah. Um, And so there's a podcast that I really enjoy listening to um, by Nicole Kozian out in California um, that she and her husband have put this on and she's a guru for sure. Um, and she, yeah, just had like this great podcast on the standing exam. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. How have I not done? Like, 
I did it once accidentally, not accidentally, but like one time I was like, enough is enough. I have to see you standing up. Yeah. So I did it. Um, but I never like, you know, I never implemented it into practice. Yeah. And then I was listening to this and I was like, oh my gosh. Well, it makes so much sense. Like, make, like just you're duh. standing all day long, right? Like it just, it goes back to a lot of train for what you're going to do, right? You're, you're training your body to function day to day. And if you, it's great if you spend most of your day laying down in bed, but the the rest of the time you're going to be standing and sitting and moving and twisting and running or going up and down the stairs, like doing all sorts of different things. And you're, like you said, at the very beginning, your pelvic floor has to react to all of that. So I can see how the, the laying down exam makes sense from like a clinical perspective, but from a like real world, you know, usage perspective, it would be great to see how exactly body stacks up in terms of like what happens when you stand. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, looking at it in standing, but also, you know, what happens when you squat, Mm -hmm. right? Like what happens when you stand with, what happens when you stand instead of with your feet together with your feet out more like you are going to prepare to do a jumping jack yeah. or a lunge. So, um, again, really being more mindful of that holistic approach and not just focusing on this one piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we, you know, so that kind of more or less wraps up that internal pelvic exam. We'll also then, I usually will take all of this information we've gathered, which truly at this point is just information, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, bunch of objective stuff on paper. (laughs) But what does it then look like? Then we look at movement patterns. So, you know, what does it look like when you squat, when you lunge, when you run, when you jump? Um, How do you control your body? Mm. What are you doing with your breath during these things? So what does it look like when you lift 10 pounds? Um, So really kind of put that whole picture together. Um, yeah. And that's a lot. Yeah. And that does not all get done in an hour and a half most of the time. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but that's kind of the typical one to two session pelvic health evaluation and um, a lot of discussion around goals mm. um, for sure. Cause, you know, if your goal is, you know, if you're 80 years old and you just want to make sure you can get to the toilet 20 feet away on time. Well, that's a lot different than the postpartum mom that wants to run a half marathon or the 16-year-old that just started crossfitting and is peeing her pants when she does a heavy lift. Yeah. Like, So that piece is definitely integral to then how do we move forward with yeah. all this information. Yeah. I think that's super helpful so, for people to hear because, again, going back to my like original question, understanding what you're signing up for uh, when, when saying, okay – because I, I do think that there are some people that are sort of of the opinion, you know, there's, they, they don't want, they're embarrassed. They don't want to talk about it. You know, it's sort of like a hush hush topic. Now I'm, now I've just heard that I can go get PT for this. What is that going to look like? You know, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, 
And I think, you know, one of the things we, we did get a sort of a, a question that's an offshoot of this about Kegels because you brought them up. Um, the question was, are Kegel exercises effective or is there a better alternative? <laughs> and you sort of alluded to the fact that some people aren't doing Kegels right to begin with. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming that there are that there are other exercises, but that a lot of the, and stop me if I'm wrong, but like a lot of the quote unquote homework that you might give isn't Kegels. Like there are other things, yeah, that you would give yeah. as sort of homework for pelvic floor. And I'm sure, I know there's like all sorts of different diagnoses and, and ways to treat, but it seems like it would, people would think, why would I go to a pelvic floor PT when all they're going to tell me to do is Kegels? Like that in my mind is sort of like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. Yep. Um, I'll say that I, I will instruct patients in the clinic in how to do a proper Kegel because you need to know how to do it. Uh, right. But most of that really isn't that you need to know how to do an isolated Kegel, but we're trying to retrain your brain how to use your pelvic floor because you've just spent 30, 40, 50, 60, however many years standing up tall, shoulders back, sucking your gut in. And really what that's doing is putting downward pressure on the pelvic floor, which is the opposite of a Kegel. Hmm. And a lot of times when people Kegel, there's a breath hold involved with that. Mm. Um, you know, there's some very interesting Kegels that I've seen. <laughs> I can guarantee very- you right now, everyone that's listening to this is like doing just, their version yeah. and like critiquing themselves as you go through this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So first off, stop inhaling with your Kegel. Try it again with an exhale. Okay. <laughs> exhale as you contract. Exhale as you contract. The other piece of the Kegel is most people think about from like a female standpoint, they're thinking about, oh, I'm stopping urine Mm -hmm. um, or squeezing at the vagina. You want to be thinking about you're actually stopping urine and stopping gas. Ooh, Um, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. And that's important because if you were to look down into the pelvis, the vagina sits in the front 30% of the pelvis. The anus rectum sits in the back 70%. If you just think about squeezing at the vagina, you're missing a majority of the pelvic floor contraction. That's so good. Um, So that's kind of my key, my cues. Um, From a man standpoint, my husband helped me with this one. He said, you're walking into cold water and you got to lift the boys. (laughs) And I was like... All right, I can picture that. Okay. Yes, Ruben. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's very good at helping me brainstorm my analogy. I love it. I love it. So, for all the men out there, you can practice lifting the boys and you'll get a decent contraction. That's great. Yeah, we do have quite a few guys that listen to this show as well. So, that's super helpful for them. Great. So, again, the isolated Kegel, I really only use it to teach the technique. Yeah. And so, You know, there's research out there that says that a baby takes 150 um, lengths of a football field in steps before they actually learn how to walk. Um, And the reason for that is their brain is creating the motor pattern. It's creating the motor plan so that eventually the baby is 
walking mm-hmm. and shaking a rattle and driving everybody crazy and wondering <laughs> where they are and what they're doing. Yeah. The baby's no longer thinking about walking. Mm-hmm. That's just background noise. And that's really what we're trying to do with the pelvic floor so that every time you lift, you're not thinking, oh, pick up that pelvic floor. Every time your foot hits the ground mm-hmm. while you're running, you're not saying, kegel, kegel, kegel. Right. It's just happening. Again, it's that reactive. You can't you can't think reaction. Right. It has to just be in the background. So that's where an isolated Kegel might be utilized. Mm. However, if someone's muscles were found to be super tight and we start having them Kegel, they're only going to get tighter. Right. So before we can introduce that, we have to work on relaxation of mm. those pelvic floor muscles. Um, and also why are they tight? Like, what are the contributing factors here? Maybe it is the hamstrings. Not that your hamstrings need to be super loosey-goosey gymnastics over your head because your hamstrings are also meant to stabilize you. Right. (laughs) But (laughs) there is a balance here. Um, So looking at contributing factors that way. And then strengthening, again, we've said it several times, like your core doesn't operate alone. So there's really no point in training an isolated Kegel Mm. other than to make sure you can coordinate the muscles properly. Um, So it's really – I do a lot with functional movement patterns um, and what are the other contributing factors um, to make sure that, again, we're like – you know, it's not a Band-Aid fix. We want to make sure we've fixed the system. Mm -hmm not just covered up one little thing. So I think the yeah. the movement patterns and movement systems are really interesting to me going back to that whole analogy of, you know, breaking down the body into its component parts and then making each component work better and then putting the whole thing back together so that you're sort of like upping your game, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but all of the movement patterns that we do on a daily basis without extensive thought, right, are things that we had to learn piece by piece by piece over time. And we've just put them on autopilot. Like this is what the brain wants to do. We want Mm -hmm. to, you know, um, master a specific, whether it's a task, whether it's a movement pattern, so that we can devote brain power, time and energy and resources. Like the, the, the body wants to be as efficient as possible. And if we absolutely can cheat air quotes, cheat something by <laughs> making it easier, then that's the path it's going to take. And so sometimes we end up with these funky, I'm sure you've seen it, funky running gates, funky squatting patterns. And some of it is because of ankles and knees and spine and things like that. But some of it is just that was the most efficient way. And that is now, sometimes I, I equate it to like when you go to the beach or if you have a box of sand, right, you go to the sandbox and you just take your finger and very lightly trace it across the top of the sand. Well, if you keep doing that, eventually you're going to end up with a, a rut that is super deep. And that's sort of how I explain it to people when they're like, well, how did I end up this way? And I'm like, this is how, right? <laughs> and unless you interrupt that, that line in the sand by changing directions or changing inputs or changing something about it. It's just, you're just going to groove that all the way down to, you know, as far as the sand goes. Right. And it does take time to backfill and sort of course correct. So Mm -hmm. I know that's the frustrating part 
when I work with a lot of runners on, you know, hip and back and knee stuff, or just like generally getting them to do more stretching, right? Like they want it to happen instantly. And part of what I have to keep reminding them of going back to what we talked about at the very beginning was just time. Like either we can, you know, we can take the short and quick route, which is not always the most beneficial, or we could really sort of reset the system and make everything better. It's going to take more time, but it's going to pay off for you in the long run. Like you'll just get more out of it in the long run. Absolutely. And that can be like from a physical therapy standpoint, the challenge that we face oftentimes is insurance. Yep. Right. Because they're like, nope, six visits. Well, this might take more than six visits. It might be 10 visits over 10 months. Mm Mm-hmm. Because there's the in-between work. Like, I don't necessarily need to see you three times a week, twice a week. Like, yeah. this, like there's so much layering. There's so much independent work, especially when it comes to the pelvic floor, um, that can be done. And so insurance can really be a factor for us. We operate a hybrid model at our physical therapy clinic specifically for that reason mm. um, so that people have that option with reasonable cash rates that if insurance does cut them off, like, you know what, this is important to me. Mm. And this is, you know, I say reasonable um, because when you think it it can be challenging and that everyone loves going to get a massage. (laughs) People will dish out 200 bucks for a massage any day of the week. And I'm with them because you know what? That is like an hour and a half of pure bliss yep. in my life. It is worth that $200. Totally. But if someone wants to spend, is asked to spend $150 to work and not have an immediate result, it's a different story. Yeah. It, it's a different story. So we work to create options and educate. Educate, educate, educate. Yeah. Um, You know, it's huge, but it takes time. I think that's the challenging part too is um, because I get a lot of runners that either, you know, are part of my programs or send me emails that are like, yeah, I graduated, in air quotes, I graduated from PT and now the thing is back or something new has Mm -hmm. happened. And my first question is, okay, well, okay, you you were graduated for whatever reason, whether you timed out in terms of insurance, you timed out in terms of your own um, expenses, uh, whatever you were able to to devote to this. Did you continue with your homework? Like, did you continue to do those things? And I want to say like nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And which I get, but I think it's, this is always the challenging piece. It's like, what I try to tell people is that there isn't a start and an end to this stuff. It's one long <laughs> continuum and where and it you... only gets harder the older you get. <laughs> yeah. And the quicker you can get right with that in your head and just like invest the time and the energy, you don't even, you might not necessarily even need to 
invest money if you've already invested some sort of money in PT or in some coaching or something, and you just now need to commit the time and the effort and the energy to continue what you've started. I mean, it's much easier to, you know, body in motion stays in motion versus having to constantly work up the inertia to get started. I mean, that's, I think what drains a lot of people with all of this stuff, whether it's PT or starting and stopping running or randomly stretching or eating well and drinking all of my water. And then, you know, the next day, none of that happens. I mean, it's just like, if you can find ways to sort of I always say microdose, but I don't mean like in the medicinal sense, just like do little mini bites of all the things consistently over time that builds and you won't have such a hard time with these major issues popping up because you're sort of addressing all you're you're checking all the boxes more frequently, you know? So I think just Absolutely. people understanding that this is a continuum versus there's a, a finite start and end to PT or training or whatever, like yeah. it might help There's, them. Everyone's always going to come off the bandwagon. Yep. Like priorities in life are going to shift, right? The last year has been completely focused on starting elevation physical therapy. Yep. Like it's the current baby, right? And so that's taking all the time and that means that things have shifted. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I've ignored myself completely. Maybe I wasn't doing what I was doing before mm-hmm. to the extent, but you're still, like you said, kind of microdosing, trying to take those small pieces. And a huge piece of kind of the culture of our practice is that when you leave, you should have a toolbox. You should have the education. You should have the toolbox. And You shouldn't need to come back to me for the same problem. If I'm doing my job right, I will not be treating your pelvis six times over the next six years, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't mean if something like drastic changes that you shouldn't come back. But like if I'm doing things right, you have the education, you have the knowledge, you have the tools to start implementing, And if you implement and it doesn't change, that's a different story. Right. We can do something Um, with that. That's a new piece of information. Yep, exactly. Um, And so that's, I mean, that's a huge piece of what we do is like, yeah, there's the physical treatment, then there's everything else and there's the lifestyle Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, people, oh, I'm, they start off strong, right? Doing their their homework. Yep. <laughs> Seven days this week. Yep. Like doing great. And then you see him a month later. Oh, I did it twice this week. Yep. And it's like, I get it. Cause it's not necessarily fun. Like some of it's downright boring. Uh-huh. Like, like, so, like I'm, a, I'll be honest. Yeah. Like I'll tell people like we're in the full blown boring stage of your rehab <laughs> and eventually it'll get more exciting. Yeah. Um, but it takes work. It takes dedication. It's going to come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, habits are huge. I do a lot of habit stacking with people. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have time. Well, first off, I'll never give you an hour-long rehab mm-hmm. program because you will not do it because right. I would not do it. Yeah. If you gave me an hour of quote-unquote homework, psh, I already went to school. I'm done being told I have to do an hour of work after I feel work. the same way. <laughs> But if I give you 15 to 20 minutes, 
you'll probably do it. Yep. Now, okay, let's say you let's say one of your exercises is balancing on one foot. Do it while you brush your teeth. Right? There's there's two minutes. Do one leg for one minute, one leg for the other minute. Check. Now you've also got to stretch your hamstrings. Well, for me, every morning I come out into my kitchen, I turn on my tea kettle. I should call it a water kettle because I'm making coffee. But anyways, <laughs> I turn on my tea kettle to boil the water, sit and stretch hamstrings. Why not? Yep. Like do 10 squats. Why yep. not? So I talk to people a lot about, okay, what's your routine? Where can we stack habits? Because you don't have to do it. There's benefit to doing everything all at once. And some things certainly should be done. Yeah all at once because there's amount of load on tissue, right? Tissue load. I think our ultra runners can get on board with that. Yeah, totally. Um, so yes, that is important. But there are also some things that can be stacked and separated out in order to decrease the amount of time and increase the odds that you're going to do it. Because if it's part of your routine that every morning I turn on my tea kettle and stretch my hamstrings. Yeah you're going to keep your hamstring stretched. Yeah. So. One of my big things is getting people to do a, a movement routine that I call a daily shakedown, which is, it can be as formal as you want it to be. It can also be as free form and ad hoc as you want it to be. But basically how many joints and muscles can you take through their greatest pain-free range of motion every single day? If you have five minutes, even if you have one minute, do one joint. If you have five minutes, pick a couple things. If you have 10, 15, 20, it can be as long or as short as you want it to be. And so um, I'm always impressed and also surprised by the, the way that people implement this. Some people do it like a habit stack and they'll do it while they're brushing their teeth or um, while they're waiting for their coffee to boil or if they're in line. I mean, I've had people like send me pictures like in line at the airport doing my shakedown, you know, like or waiting at the airport, which is great. Like, you know, all that stuff. It's, it's one of those things that it's sort of like an all or nothing mentality. People think like, if I can't do the whole thing, and again, this is the perfectionist in me, I'm sure you can resonate with this as well. Like if I can't do the whole thing and I can't do it really well, then it's not worth me doing at all. And that's just pure bullshit. Like, you know, there's, there's value in trying there's, that's the way you're going to build that inertia that you're going to be able to make this a habit. Just going back to what you said about the baby learning to walk. That's analogy I use all the time. I'm like, I'm pretty sure babies don't give up walking. Like after the first (laughs) few steps, like, no, they're persistent. They keep going. They have a goal and your goal is different. You've already mastered the skill of walking. Now you have to adopt that same mentality, that same thought framework to the thing that you want, which is probably like a a highly functioning knee. It's just going to take longer and going to be a little more boring, right? But, but you're ultimately going to get the thing you want. And that's the, like, that's the carrot that you have to dangle out in front of you. Absolutely. Yep. And it's hard. I mean, it's mental toughness, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's fortitude and it's dedication and how much do you want it? And Yeah. That's funny that you brought that up because that's another analogy I use all the time. It's like people are interested, especially people who are interested in running ultras. And once, you know, when you first become introduced to the idea of an ultra, 
maybe you've run a half or maybe you've run a full and that extra, you know, that extra little bit of mileage between marathon and ultra seems doable rationally, but you're like, oof, I don't know that the mile, the marathon was tough. Can I go the extra, you know, five, six miles? They want to know how to create mental toughness. And they think that this is some big thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's just, can you do the daily shakedown for the next 14 days straight and not skip? And they're like, that's mental. T-. I'm like, yes. yes. <laughs> I, I grew up on the top of a hill. <laughs> so it doesn't matter which way I left my house. I was either coming half a mile uphill or three quarters of a mile uphill, different grades. Yep. And my mental toughness and my personality being what my personality was, you know, in fifth grade and I never stopped, the mental toughness was I run all the way to the driveway. I don't stop at the bottom and cool down on a nice walk home. (laughs) I run to the end of the driveway and I, you know, I always said in New Hampshire, the state championship cross country course is up and down and around a ski mountain. Yep. Um, I can run uphill. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. And the finish, that's this long slog uphill. Mm-hmm. I can do that because on my three-mile run, I ran up the last hill. Yeah. On my 10-mile run, I ran up the last hill. On my 25-mile run, I ran up the last hill. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something so silly as my house was on top of the hill, but a little thing that definitely, you know, the little things make a big difference. Oh, for sure. For For sure. sure. Um, (laughs) Is there anything that we missed about pelvic floor or PT or anything that you want to be sure that people know or understand? Um, I think we've hit it. All pretty well on that. We've done a good job. I'd say um, don't be afraid to ask for a referral Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the times you do have to be the initiator. Mm -hmm. Um, It's becoming, again, a little more mainstream, but it really depends where you live, um, who the practitioners surrounding you are. You'll still find some old school doctors that like to say things like, oh, you're on the pelvic health trend (laughs) or something ridiculous like that. It grinds my gears to hear it. But anyways, so don't be afraid to ask. Absolutely, absolutely um, stand up for yourself and what your needs are. Mm. Um, For the postpartum moms, don't take good at six weeks is enough. I mean, if I had it my way, every single – individual at six weeks postpartum would be in a PT clinic, Mm. even if it was just to say you truly are good. Yeah. Because it's the most in-depth, like full holistic approach to the rest of your life that you're going to get. So advocate for yourself. Ask for what your needs are. Um, Remember that incontinence and urgency and Painful intercourse are maybe common, but not normal. (laughs) Um, I think that's huge. And then if you're struggling to find a pelvic health PT Mm. in your area, because sometimes that can be a bit of an issue, um, there are Herman and Wallace 
um, which I can give you these links yeah, to. Herman great. and Wallace has a great directory of pelvic health PTs that have completed their courses. They're kind of one of those top leading groups for pelvic health training in the PT world. Um, and then Global, Global Pelvic Health Alliance Network or members is another um, good directory group. Um, Facebook, <laughs> there are um, some pretty decent pelvic health pages on Facebook that you can link into. Mm. Um, and then I guess the only other thing I would say is if like you absolutely can't find a pelvic health practitioner near you. Um, there is one online strength training program. <laughs> There's only one that I'll recommend people to. And the only reason I'll do it is because I believe in her work. She created it with PTs, with pelvic health PTs. Um, I've gone through her free trials to know exactly what it is she does teach. Um, and that would be um, Get Mom Strong. Um, and the woman that does it, her name's Ashley. Um, it does have mom in the name, but I'll tell you, not being a mother myself, it is an excellent program um, for men, women, young, old, runners, non-runners, you name it. Um, so awesome. if you are looking for something um, to integrate, um, Get Mom Strong is a very good home-based Awesome. program that you can do. Yeah. We'll include some yeah. of those links down below so that people can uh, easily access them. Yes. And this, of course, if you're near New Hampshire, you can come to Elevation Physical Therapy. Absolutely. Rehab <laughs> and hook in with me. Yeah. Where can people um, check you guys out online? Yes. So think about your domain name before you create them in the future. <laughs> but we are www.elevationptandsportsrehab.com. Never again. <laughs> well, it's very specific and nobody can duplicate it. <laughs> you can also just type it into Google and you'll get right there. <laughs> Excellent. Are you guys on social media yeah. too? Can people sort of follow we along there? We do have a Facebook and an Instagram presence as well. Um, same name. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. You bet. Becca, thank you so much yeah. for coming on and sharing all of your... I know I'm going to get lots of follow-up questions, so we might have to do round two yeah. and, <laughs> and talk about... Maybe it's not even pelvic floor. Maybe people want to hear about knees or hips or who knows. Maybe we'll have to Absolutely. do Absolutely. Send it our way. Pick our brains. Yeah. Between Ruben and I, we've got you guys covered. So. That's awesome. Great. Awesome. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Becca. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed that conversation with Becca. So much valuable information and insight in terms of pelvic floor, but also how it connects to everything else. So if you've been hesitating on booking a pelvic PT appointment, I would really encourage you to do so. Just remember what Becca said, you might need a referral from your doctor, your PCP, or maybe even your OBGYN in order to get there, but it's well worth it, okay? And I specifically asked her to walk us through sort of the appointment protocol, like how it goes, because I personally think that that would be a hurdle for a lot of people 
in booking the appointment, right? Like you don't want to go if you don't really know what to expect, especially when it comes to pelvic floor stuff. And for us ladies, we definitely don't want to have a second pelvic exam every year. Like if we can just limit it to one, <laughs> that would be great. So just know that this is a completely different experience, um, a completely different outcome and objective. So make sure that you go and check that out again. Becca listed a couple great resources that we are going to link below. So if you don't really know of someone close to you, uh, that you can go and click those links and research some well-trained uh, professionals that you can go and get an appointment with. Okay. So just as a general reminder, you guys, She Runs Ultra's membership community is open through the month of July, and then it's going to shut down. Okay. So you have a limited amount of time to come and join us. Um, if you're listening in real time, it's Friday, July 7th. Next Wednesday, Julie Shobe is going to be doing a live Q&A inside our membership, talking about her masterclass that she created exclusively for us on how to fuel your first 50K. And I'll just tell you, you guys, if you've already done a 50K, or even if you've done 50 miles or 100 or even 200, the information that she shares in this masterclass is really valuable, especially if you did a crappy job <laughs> of fueling whatever race you did before. There's always room to grow and learn uh, new techniques, new uh, strategies for fueling. And Julie's got some rock solid stuff that she is sharing and coaching people on. So not only do you get the masterclass, but you get the ability to come on and join us and get your questions, your specific questions and situations answered by Julie herself. So make sure that you go click the link below to join the She Runs Ultras community. Just as a general reminder, it's exclusively open to women. Uh, that's open through the rest of July, you guys. Then we close it down for a couple months. We will open it up a little bit later, but just know that there's going to be more master classes, uh, more kin stretch, more yoga, more of everything that happens during those months when it's closed for registration. So doors are open now through the end of July. Hope to see you guys there. That's all for this episode. Enjoy this beat and I'll see you all soon.